Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Please be seated. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9 as we pray together this morning. Father, as we open your word together today, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and understanding that we might be confronted by truth in this passage, and that by your Holy Spirit, that truth would come to bear in our lives. I pray that you would deepen our faith, that you would give us greater and more abiding joy in you and your Son, and I pray, Lord, that you would do all these things this morning as we consider Mark 9. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are lots of things in life that really need to work perfectly every time you use them. For example, we count on the brakes in our cars 
to work every single time you push the pedal. It would be chaos if we couldn't count on that. When people go skydiving, they need to expect that the parachute will deploy without getting tangled. And if you go get a tattoo later today, as I know that many of you are planning to do, you want to know that the person doing it isn't going to make a mistake and spell something wrong. We don't take chances on these things because a parachute with holes or a tattoo artist who can't spell are just not worth messing around with. They're not worth the risk to us. We only want the best. And that way of thinking makes sense, but it causes trouble if we assume that Jesus thinks the same way, that He only wants the best, and that anyone who struggles, who stumbles and wrestles with doubt is someone that He will cast aside, is not worthy of His time, not worth the risk. The fact is that Jesus welcomes the person who knows how imperfect they really are, and He does not scorn the weak in favor of the strong. Instead, He is honored when the weak put their meager trust in Him. And that is something that this passage helps us understand, that even the weakest faith makes all the difference if it is entrusted to the right person. Last week, Bruce preached to us from one of the most significant events in Jesus' ministry when the gates of heaven were opened and His transcendent glory shined through, and the reality of Jesus' divine identity was revealed to three of the disciples, and they did not know what to make of it. Now, as they come down the mountain, their heads are still spinning. At this point, even if the disciples are beginning to grasp who Jesus is, they are still figuring out what it means to trust and follow Him. They have lots of ideas about how Jesus might use His amazing power and authority, but no clue how to understand Jesus' repeated comments about dying and then coming back. They just cannot make sense of it. They've grasped that Jesus is immensely powerful, that He has a divine identity, but they do not know what Jesus will do with all that power and authority. At this point, what they're thinking about really is themselves. We see evidence of that when Jesus arrives at the base of the mountain where the other nine disciples have been waiting. When Jesus and Peter, James, and John arrive, it is a chaotic scene. Mark tells us that when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. People have gathered out here in the middle of nowhere. The three groups that have repeatedly pursued Jesus throughout this book. Some came seeking Jesus for help. Others just stopped to see what was going on. They were curious. And some who were Jewish leaders and scholars called the scribes have come to attack Jesus and his ministry. So this scene that we walk up to in Mark 9:14 is a snapshot of what things will be like when Jesus departs and leaves these same disciples to lead the church. And it is not a promising result. As Jesus walks up, there is a heated argument happening. But even before he asks what's going on, Mark says that when people in the crowd saw him, they were greatly amazed and they ran toward him and greeted him. The people recognize Jesus and they react to his arrival, but in a very interesting way. The word that Mark uses here that 
appears in the ESV translation that I'm reading this morning as greatly amazed is a really interesting word. It's unique. It's only used five times in the whole New Testament, and all five of them are here in Mark. And in every other case, it describes astonishment and alarm, like seeing something that is so unexpected that a person feels unnerved by it. The great amazement that people feel at seeing Jesus arrive in this chaotic scene in Mark 9 is probably something like my brothers and I felt if we were fighting with one another and my dad walked into the room. Even if people don't know much about Jesus, they intuitively understand the significance of his presence. They sense something about the authority that he has. And so this argument stops. People are silent because they see that the one who can answer the dispute, who can settle the dispute, has arrived. And so the people in the crowd run toward him, interested in what he will have to say about all this. But when Jesus asks, what are you arguing about with them? It isn't one of the disciples who answers him, and it isn't one of the scribes who answers him. It's a total stranger. Mark doesn't even tell us his name, even though he's at the center of the action here. He explains to Jesus that he came looking for help for his son, who was afflicted by a demonic force that makes him mute and makes him convulse and foam at the mouth and grind his teeth together, makes his body go rigid. It's a set of symptoms that sound a lot like a neurological disorder of some kind, something like what we now know as epilepsy. In fact, there are lots of people who look at this passage They read it and they deny that there's any spiritual factor at all. In fact, it causes them to question whether or not spiritual realities are real at all. They read this passage and they say, see, these people back then, they just didn't understand about seizures and what causes them. So they invented an explanation. They they needed to make sense of this thing that was happening, so they, they invented an explanation. It must be a demon. But now that we have MRI machines, we don't need that folk explanation of what was happening to this poor kid. Because what he needed is not Jesus. What he needed is modern medicine. But we should not be so quick to dismiss a spiritual factor here for several reasons. The first is that the passage gives us evidence that this is not just a physical affliction. Verse 20 The boy is brought before Jesus. The power that is at work in him, this dark power that is at work in him, throws him to the ground in another seizure. Just like the crowd, this spirit in him senses the power and authority that emanates from Jesus, and it reacts to his presence. Afterward, when Jesus explains what happened to the disciples, he gives them a spiritual explanation, not a physical one. He doesn't explain it by describing a neurological disorder because what's happening in this kid is not visible on an MRI. But secondly, we need to remember that demons make use of whatever is readily available to them to do their dirty work. R.C. Sproul explains that Satan exploits any frailty that is already there. So it may be that this young man was suffering from epilepsy, but that it was exacerbated by the intervention of the evil one. In the modern West, we're quick to roll our eyes at things like demons. And I think that's just how the devil wants it. If we don't take them seriously, they can do their work unchecked. But for this father, who has watched his little boy 
suffer for years and years. Ignoring it is not an option. So when word reached him about a teacher from Galilee who had already cast out many demons before, he had healed the sick, he had helped so many people, his father says, I'm going to find him. But on the day that he did, he faced another stroke of bad luck. His disciples are there. They tell him that Jesus has gone off on a hike with a few friends, but not to worry. They assure him that they are more than capable of dealing with this pesky demon problem. After all, the disciples have experience with exactly this type of thing. Earlier in Mark, back in chapter 6, Jesus sends the disciples out to teach, proclaim the kingdom, to heal people, and to cast out demons. And Mark tells us in Mark 6.13 that they did, in fact, cast out many demons. So when this young father and his son come asking for help, the disciples were not worried. They figured that they had this situation under control. Except that sometime later, when Jesus arrives, it's obvious that things have deteriorated into chaos. This demon will not budge. And the scribes who are there, watching this whole thing play out, are giddy. They're eager to score a point against Jesus. If these disciples are his representatives, what does it say about him that they are utterly helpless, that they have apparently no idea what they're doing, and that their confidence is so apparently misplaced. The crowd watching the disciples' failed attempts in the ensuing argument were apparently whipped into a frenzy. So it's hard to imagine, it is hard to imagine the disciples making a bigger mess. And it reminds us of something important, that without Jesus, there is only disorder and confusion. When we try to handle things on our own, the best we can do is make a mess. And if our past successes give us confidence to handle today's troubles like it did for the disciples, we're only setting ourselves up for an even bigger failure. It's a lesson that Jesus will drive home in Acts chapter 1 before he establishes the disciples as the leaders of the church. In Acts 1, Jesus is resurrected, and he's about to send, ascend to heaven. And the disciples are going to have the responsibility to look after this fledgling movement of the handful of people who are the first believers, and then to carry the message of salvation around the globe. But first, Jesus tells them the first step in that, pro that global mission that they've been given. The first step, he says, is to do nothing, to wait it's an interesting strategy, of course, considering the magnitude of the job that they're being given. Worldly wisdom would say that they should capitalize on the momentum. At this point, hundreds of people are excited. They've seen Jesus risen from the grave. There's an excitement about the things that God is doing, but Jesus tells them, do not move a muscle yet. So they waited, they prayed, Jesus has ascended, and they are just waiting uncertain of what's going to happen next. And then one morning, they heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The Holy Spirit was coming to indwell God's people so that through those people, God himself would be at work in the church. Immediately after receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up, proclaims the gospel in a sermon, and then amazingly, 3,000 people got saved that day. In God's power, there is no limit 
to the things that might be accomplished. But as we see here in Mark 9, when the disciples work alone, things go wrong fast. That's something that we need to remember too. Whether we're talking about reaching our neighbors with the gospel, discipling our children, planting a church, sending a missionary to the other side of the world, or growing in our own Christian maturity and holiness, if God himself is not at work in the situation, the result will be disorder and frustration. The disciples have responded to the situation here in Mark 9 with confidence in themselves and in their past successes, but they failed. Critics of the gospel pounced, and people there began to doubt Jesus himself. So there is a considerable amount of collateral damage involved. And Jesus responds to all of that very strongly, calling people a faithless generation in verse 19. He is not just talking to the scribes who reject him. He's talking to the disciples who follow him too. Last week, Bruce explained that after everything they've seen, The disciples, they still don't understand what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And so, Jesus says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? There is no way to soften the severity of that comment. It is a far cry from the image of Jesus that most of us have in our minds the one who shows compassion to the downcast and is kind to those in need. How do we reconcile that image of Jesus that we have with Jesus' words to the disciples here in Mark 9? I think the answer is in what Jesus says next. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Jesus wants to help this poor kid. He's been suffering for so long. He cares about this kid. And the disciples have only made the situation worse at this point, trying to help but floundering because the power to deal with this affliction was never theirs to begin with. They are only conduits of the grace and compassion and power of God, not the source. And because of their confusion about that, this kid has not gotten the help he needs. He is still suffering. And I think that's why Jesus is so heated here. Because their mistake, it was not victimless. And I think that's why he responds to them the way that he does. The disciples have misunderstood their responsibility. Rather than leading people to Jesus, they've tried to handle things themselves. They have underestimated the problem and overestimated themselves, and now they cannot figure out where things went wrong. What a humbling, what a humbling thing for us to reflect on. How often are we guilty of the same thing? How often do we rely on ourselves assuming that we can handle it? So he says, bring him to me. And as the boy draws near, he is struck with a violent convulsion, writhing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. If you've ever seen a seizure in person, you know that it's a frightening thing to witness. And this poor kid has suffered with them for years, and his father has suffered watching this boy that he loves suffer with this affliction. And not only that, but this demonic force that's at work in him has tried to destroy him in the past by causing him to fall into open fires and water. So the father, moved by love for his son and fear of what is happening to him, says to Jesus, if you can do anything, 
have compassion on us and help us. What's fascinating to me about this request is that this father seems confident in Jesus's compassion. He's certain that Jesus will want to help. He is uncertain of whether or not he will be able to help. He knows that Jesus cares, but he's not sure whether or not that will make a difference. Since he's just watched the disciples try and try and try and fail and fail and fail, as much as their attempts were a nice gesture, they did not solve the problem. So it makes sense now that this father is wondering if Jesus can do any better. But, and this is important, despite his doubts and fears, he still asks. He's still here. He's still asking Jesus for help, even though he isn't sure if it's going to do any good. So Jesus replies to him with just a little bit of indignation, if you can, if you only knew what I could do. If you knew who you were talking to, you would realize how silly you sound right now. And he says, anything is possible for one who believes. The father's desperation is evident when he immediately replies in verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. This man is racked with doubt and uncertainty. But he puts what little faith he has in Jesus. It's not obvious to most of us who are reading this passage in English that there's a connection here to an earlier part of the passage. Mark wants us to see a contrast between this man and the disciples. They tried dealing with things on their own and in their own strength, and they failed. This father, though, has put all of his hope in Jesus. Even though he is drowning in doubt, he is clinging to a shred of hope that Jesus will help him. And original readers of this passage would have noticed this contrast immediately because back in verse 19, when Jesus called the disciples a faithless generation, the word that he uses there is the same one that this father uses to describe himself when he says, help my unbelief. He calls himself faithless, unbelieving, just like the disciples. But the moment that Jesus said, bring him to me, a delicate, fragile spark of hope is ignited in this man's heart, and a delicate spark of hope is all it takes. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that a feeble faith can receive a mighty Savior. So this father takes his whisper-thin faith that he does have and places it in Jesus' hands, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. There is as much uncertainty and disbelief in his heart as there is hope and belief. But a moment later, Jesus rebukes the demon, sending it running, never to return. He's gone. The demon throws a tantrum on its way out, convulsing the child one last time, but it flees because Jesus' power is absolute. But then, just as things were looking up for this helpless father and son, another tragedy strikes. The boy goes limp. People gasp. They can't believe it. This boy evidently was too weak to survive the ordeal, and now apparently he has died. Mark does say that he was like a corpse, so it's unclear to us if he was dead or had just fainted. 
But when Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up, the word that Mark uses to describe what's happening is the same one he'll use at the end of the book to describe Jesus' resurrection from death. The point here, regardless of whether the child actually died or just had a near-death experience, is that Jesus has authority over even death. There is nothing he cannot do. There is no part of creation that does not obey him when he gives it a command, and there is no limit to his divine authority. And I cannot, listen, I cannot possibly overstate how important it is, how important it is for us to really think about what just happened. I cannot possibly overstate how important it is. There's an illustration that I've heard from the theologian Don Carson, I think, that helps us here. In Carson's story, the story that he tells, there are two Hebrews. They're chatting on the night of the Passover in ancient Egypt. And one says to his friend, man, there sure have been a lot of crazy things happening around here lately. What with the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the hail, the locusts and everything. And now Moses says that the spirit of death is going to pass through the land tonight. And I've got to tell you, I am terrified. And his friend says, what do you mean you're terrified? The first man says, well, I mean, it's frightening, isn't it? To have the spirit of death pass through the land? Striking down the firstborn sons in every house that isn't marked with blood? And the friend says, well, haven't you done everything that you were instructed to do? Have you slaughtered the Passover lamb? Have you daubed its blood on your doorposts? Have you eaten the Passover meal? The man says, yes, well, of course, I've done all these things. And his friend says, well, then what have you got to be frightened of? Night falls in the land of Goshen, and the two men go to bed, one of them sleeping soundly, absolutely confident in God's word, and the other restless, afraid, and full of doubt. And the question is, in the morning, which one of those two men had lost a son? And the answer is neither, neither one. Because it is not the strength of their faith that saved them. It was not the strength of the father's faith here in Mark 9 that saved him or delivered his son it is that he put what little faith he had in the right man. All he had was this delicate, fragile spark of hope, but all that hope was in Jesus. Most of us, reading Mark 9, resonate with this man on some level. Most of us endure seasons of anxiety and doubt. Most of us wonder if our faith is enough, maybe we've stumbled again and again in a struggle with sin and we wonder why we are so weak. Or maybe, like the Father in this passage, our ability to trust has been damaged by years and years of affliction and heartache so that now we struggle to really believe the promises of Scripture. When the most that we can muster is this simple but absolutely flawless prayer, I believe help my unbelief. That is enough, because a feeble faith can receive a mighty Savior. There are some who have read this passage and concluded that if you just believe, in, if you just believe enough, there is nothing that God will not do for you. All right, Jesus says everything's possible for one who believes, and so they say, okay, 
No matter what it is, if you're facing chronic illness or financial shortfalls or other hardships, we're told that if you just have enough faith, then those problems will go away. And that if those problems persist, it must be because you are not believing hard enough. But I think this passage teaches us exactly the opposite of that. Jesus does not send the man away for doubting. He doesn't send him away for being faithless. He has compassion on him. He honors his meager faith because it is not the strength of the faith in the man, but the one in whom it is placed that makes all, all the difference. What a comfort that is to us when we struggle with doubts and anxieties of our own, when we are worn down by years of struggle and only a shred of hope remains, when victory over sin or relief from affliction or freedom from spiritual darkness remain elusive to us, when the only prayer that we can muster is this one, there is hope. Because the future does not hang on the magnitude of our faith, but on the majesty and grace of Christ alone. So as the passage ends, Jesus instructs his disciples. He wants them to get this. They come to him privately. After the crowd is dispersed, they want to ask, what went wrong back there? They don't want to ask in front of everyone because they're embarrassed. They've already suffered enough embarrassment in front of all these crowds and the scribes who are probably mocking them. So once they're alone, they ask Jesus, why could we not cast it out? They want to know, how come back in Mark chapter 6, we could deal with demons? Jump forward three chapters and now we can't anymore? Jesus, what's going on? And Jesus explains in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's a succinct explanation. But despite its brevity, there are a few things to notice here. First is that Jesus confirms to them and to us that this was not just a physical affliction. There was a spiritual force involved, and so spiritual weapons are necessary in dealing with it. But what's interesting to me is that even though Jesus says prayer is necessary for dealing with this type of thing, the passage does not mention Jesus praying at all, at least not out loud. We know that prayer is a priority for Jesus, that he spent lots of time devoted to it. We know that he often prays aloud as a model for the disciples, but here he doesn't. Even though he specifically says it's necessary, he doesn't do it. Apparently the disciples didn't either. This is why Jesus is making this comment. Prayer is the way that we express our dependence on God by declaring his supremacy, acknowledging our weakness, asking him to intervene in our lives, and thanking him for all that he's already done. It is the vocalization of our need of him. So when prayer is missing, it's because we think we don't really need him. And that, I think, is what Jesus is addressing here. The disciples thought they had things under control. They had dealt with this type of thing before, so they were confident in dealing with it again. Evidently, they did not pray about the situation. It didn't occur to them. And rather than looking to God for power and provision, they looked at one another. If we rely on our own strength to defeat the forces of wickedness in this world, we'll fail, just like they did. So Jesus reminds the disciples that he alone is worthy of our faith. He alone is worthy of our belief. No one else, and certainly not ourselves. Christians know that our strength 
is actually weakness. The more confident we are, the more success we've experienced, the more that we are sure we have things under control, the more likely we are to make a mess. The more that we can do, the less likely we are to rely on Christ. So it is actually good for the disciples here that they failed so miserably. Because through this experience, Jesus is teaching them a lesson that they will need to remember later when the stakes are even higher. The same is true in our own lives. May none of us neglect the reminder that we receive from Jesus in every one of our failures, that we are weak, but that He is strong. That through our weakness, His majesty and His glory shine through. There is a a warning for us here in this passage and an encouragement as well. The warning is a reminder that the world needs Christ, not us. The world needs Jesus, not Travis. In our outreach, in our love for our neighbors, in our strategies to address injustices in the world and crises around us, in the needs of the people around us, in the way that we love our families, in the way that we raise our kids, in the ways that we carry our responsibilities of leadership in the local church like Westgate, serving on church boards, or teaching in Kids' Journey, or helping to lead worship, in the way that we think about how to make improvements to our community and our country, how we think about the ballot box, and even how we go about our daily work, whether it's splitting atoms in a a lab in Cambridge, or working in a law office, or taking care of a home. In all of these things, in everything we do, it is so easy to make the same mistake that the disciples made in this passage, to think that we can handle it that what this work needs, what this world needs, is our strength, our effort, our cleverness. And only when something goes wrong and we don't know how to fix it, only then does it occur to us to pray for God's help and wisdom. It is a faithless mistake, an error that comes from having too little confidence in God and too much in ourselves. I've recently been reading, rereading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Read this book a bunch of times, but every time I reread it, I discover some detail I hadn't noticed before. The other day, I was reading the scene where uh, the, the characters in the story get the news that one of their friends has been captured by the villainous white witch. And once the characters realize what has happened, they want to rush out the door. They want, to, they want to go pick a fight with the white witch and rescue their friend. But Mr. Beaver is the voice of reason. He stops them in their tracks. He warns them that if they were to try it, the witch would turn them to stone. Against such a force of evil, they stand no chance. All they can do is make things into a bigger mess. But there is one who can do what they can't. The great lion... Aslan, who represents Christ in the story. He's on the move. He's coming. And Mr. Beaver says, he will settle the white queen. It is he, not you, that will save your friend. It was heartfelt love and concern that made these characters want to rush out the door and storm the white witch's castle. They wanted to do something. They wanted to help. But what their friend needed most was the one with the power to overturn evil itself. In our love for our neighbors, our children, our church family, and everyone else that God brings into our lives, we want to rush out the door. We want to help. We want to jump into action. We want to give all of ourselves. 
but it is Christ that the world needs. So our job is to bring the hope of Christ wherever we go. And if in his gracious providence he wills to work redemption through us, to him alone will belong all the glory. So we dare not make the faithless mistake that the disciples did here in Mark 9. And we resolve to live every day with, with a conscious dependence on, on him, expressed in the prayers that flow from humble hearts. Secondly, though, there is an encouragement for us here that what we need most is Jesus and his strength, not our own. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to save ourselves from sin and judgment. He came to lay down his life to save ours. The essence of the gospel is not that we work hard to become people who are worthy of God's affection and approval, but that God, in mercy and grace, shows us his affection and approval despite our sin. It is the most natural thing in the world to think that it's up to us, that we have to do more good than bad, and that we have to bootstrap our way up to heaven. But that is a faithless mistake. It is the same old error that comes from putting too much confidence in ourselves and too little in God. Self-assured that we are really, deep down, good people who just need to try a little bit harder, only to discover, like the disciples did, that this is a battle that can only be won by prayer, which is to say by dependence on God and His power to overturn evil itself. What we need most is not our own strength, but the strength of Christ. And in His cross and resurrection, we receive both. Our guilt is atoned for, our sin covered with grace, and newness of life established for the rest of eternity. When we face the world around us, the world out there, what it needs from us is Jesus. And when we face God, what we need is Jesus. No matter how weak and tattered your faith is today, put it in Him. It may be feeble, it may have been spread too thin over years and years of heartache, but in your weakness, you can still receive a mighty Savior. Because even weak faith is sufficient to receive the full measure of Christ's love and mercy, which is what we need most. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you today because you are glorious and holy and gracious to us. In sin, we participate in the rebellion of this world, and even our best deeds are stained with pride. We praise you for meeting us in our need, for sending your Son that he would atone for our sin. We cast all our hope on him and on your love for us. May you be glorified in our lives as we depend on you for everything we do. We pray these things in faith, trusting in the saving work of your Son.